Hello, my name is Callie. The Old Testament reading is found in Genesis 1, 28 through 31. God blessed them and said to them, be fertile and multiply, fill the earth and master it. Take charge of the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, and everything crawling on the ground. Then God said, I now give to you all the plants of the earth that yield seeds and all the trees whose fruit produces its seeds within it. These will be your food to all the wildlife, to all the birds in the sky, and to everything crawling on the ground, to everything that breathes. I give all the green grasses for food. And that's what happened. God saw everything he had made. It was supremely good. There was evening and there was morning, the sixth day, the word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Mary. The New Testament reading is found in 1 Timothy 4, verses 3 to 6. They will prohibit marriage and eating foods that God created, and he intended them to be accepted with thanksgiving by those who are faithful and have come to know the truth. Everything that has been created by God is good, and nothing that is received with thanksgiving should be rejected. These things are made holy by God's word and by prayer. If you point these things out to believers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ who has been trained by the words of faith and the good teaching that you've carefully followed. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Martha. Thank you for standing, if you're able, for the gospel reading found in Luke 24, 39 to 43. Look at my hands and my feet. It's really me. Touch me and see, for a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones like you see I have. As he said this, he showed them his hands and feet because they were wondering and questioning in the midst of their happiness. He said to them, do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of baked fish. Taking it, he ate it in front of them. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing with me as we pray this morning. Father and Son and Holy Spirit, our faithful God, would you speak to us today through your word that we might be your faithful people, not in our own effort and our own power, but because of the work of your Holy Spirit and the gift of your grace that work in our lives. Open our ears to hear, our minds to understand, and ignite our hearts with holy love for you and for others. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, New Life Downtown. Those of you who are here, those of you who are watching online, it's good to see you this morning. It's November. Man, that came quick. November for us means like the holidays are quickly approaching and that season of gift giving is coming upon us quickly. I remember as a kid that sort of the start of that season was always marked for me by the arrival of the Sears catalog. Anybody remember that? Anybody remember Sears or a catalog? 
that there would be this Christmas catalog that would come in the mail and my brothers and I, we would just start going through and circling and marking pages and creating our Christmas wish list. Now as parents, our kids wait for the little catalogs, not quite as robust as that Sears one, but Amazon and Target are trying to pick up uh, where Sears left off. And so they're circling things, they're making their Christmas list. One of my kids had an initial list inspired by Heinz. It had 57 varieties uh, on that list. She's slowly paring it down to something more you know, attuned to reality. <laughs> but in, in any conversation on gifts, we're always sort of wondering, like, what's a good gift to give to someone? We're wanting to give good gifts to those that we love. And sometimes we're questioning, like, what's an, what's an appropriate gift? What's a useful gift? If you have kids or maybe when you were a kid, your parents were wondering, like, what's an age-appropriate gift? We ask questions about when are kids ready for certain things? In other words, when can they be trusted to use it rightly, to receive the gift and to actually allow that gift to be a benefit to them rather than in some way something that costs them something or hurts them or damages them or leads them into a life that we wouldn't want for them. So we're always sort of asking these questions about gifts. We hold those with us as we come into uh, this passage today. We're working through a series in Paul's first letter to Timothy, and we're now in chapter four. This letter was written uh, in the mid-60s, not the 1960s, but the mid-60s, 1900 years before the 60s, uh, while Timothy is in a city called Ephesus. Paul has asked him to stay there because there's all of this false teaching that's spreading around the house church there, and it's causing all kinds of problems. This false teaching seems to be coming from three different sources, sometimes three at the same time, sometimes one of them, but there seems to be happening in the congregation that there's some misinterpretation of the Old Testament, that there's an infiltration of Greco-Roman theology, mythology. We talked about this a couple weeks ago when we talked about how people are bringing with them, them, uh, bringing with them into the church the theology of the goddess Artemis that they learned growing up. And now they become Christians and they're trying to reconcile the way of Jesus and the way of Artemis. And they're getting all confused about things. And the other source seems to be the introduction of Gnosticism or dualism, which I'm going to say a little bit more about in just a few minutes. But all of these sort of sources are coming into the church and it's leading to bad theology and the breakdown of community, which sounds like the perfect name for like an 80s punk rock album, right? Like bad theology and the breakdown of community is just some angst somewhere in that that was waiting to hit in 1983 and they've just, it's time passed and it doesn't work anymore. But the challenge is Christians reading a letter like this is to try to identify at any given moment in the letter what Paul is correcting. What's Paul actually addressing? Because this letter that we have is just one part of a larger conversation. It's an ongoing larger conversation between Paul and Timothy. And so we're trying to figure out based on history and context and all the things, okay, what's happening here? What's Paul addressing and why is he addressing it? And what solutions is he advocating for? That's really hard in most of the letter. In chapter four, though, at the very beginning, it becomes really easy. That there is a moment here where it's like, oh, Paul is clearly addressing the, either the sort of introduction of Gnosticism or Hellenistic or Greek dualism. 
Uh, and these become massive issues in the church by the second or third century and actually continue to be huge issues facing in the church today as we think about the faithful life of the Christian. The idea of dualism, there's various kind of kinds of dualism, but the basic idea is that it divides the world into two opposite and opposing groups or forces. And some of this is just universally true. There is good music and there is country music. Oh, I got, I got some cheers, some booze. That's, I think that's how you know, like that landed, like that was good. Uh, and other, uh, or maybe, you know, less controversial, there's good food. And then there's any food made with mayonnaise or Miracle Whip. Like that's devil's food, people. And like, we just don't like for the love of God and all things holy, just don't do that to eggs. But when... <laughs> What, what's going on here for Timothy is nothing that light. It's more of a, what we call a cosmological dualism. It's a kind of dualism that pits the spiritual against the material that says that everything that is spiritual is good and everything that is material or physical is bad or it's evil or it's lesser or in some versions it's not even real. It's sort of a, a figment of our imagination in some capacity. What Gnosticism or dualism of this type tends to do is it personalizes and prioritizes that which is immaterial, that which is invisible. In some streams of it, it, it says that really the only thing that matters is the mind or the soul or the inner sense of self. And what it correspondingly does is it depersonalizes and disparages the physical. So everything material is to be sort of shunned and pushed away. The salvation paradigm in this model is that salvation is an escape from or a transcending or transforming of material reality in order to enter into some sort of immaterial or spiritual kind of reality. But what happens in this model, is this, in this way of thinking, is it actually creates adverse relationships between us and creation, between us and things. It actually can even create adverse relationships between us and our own bodies and the, the physical and material sort of part of us, recognizing that humans are embodied, that we have bodies, that we are bodies, that this is not something different from us. This is part of us. And what ends up happening is it leads in two very sort of interesting and even seemingly opposing ethical trajectories. And one sort of idea, it's the sense that matter doesn't matter. That anything that's, that's physical doesn't matter, doesn't have value, doesn't have worth, doesn't have meaning. And if matter doesn't matter, then it doesn't matter what you do with it. And I think that's the most times I've said matter in one sentence in my entire life. So it doesn't matter what you do to it, and it doesn't matter what you do with it. Maybe one of the most poignant examples of this is in a lot of contemporary sexual ethics, where sort of the ethical sort of apex is just consents. As long as these acts involve consenting adults, it's okay because it's just bodies and it doesn't really matter because it's just physical. But as Christians are like, no, 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 that's not actually how humans work. Humans, you can't, we can't bifurcate ourselves. That we bring all of us into a situation, physical, spiritual, mental, relational, and you can't sort of pull those things apart. And when you do, 
bad things actually end up happening to the whole sort of trajectory of human flourishing. Another version of this is that matter is bad or matter is evil. And so everything that's physical should be avoided. It results in this sort of extreme asceticism. This is actually really common in religious contexts, including Christian ones, where everything that's physical seems to be bad or dangerous. But this actually flows against the whole flow of Christian theology, the whole story of God, that God made the physical worlds, that he took our bodies and breathed into them the breath of life. And when everything went awry, God didn't just say like, oh, forget it, I'm doing away with it. Instead, God came in flesh himself, flesh and blood, the incarnation God, inhabiting the physical becoming human. And then when Jesus died, he he raises again. And as our gospel reading said, he didn't come as a ghost out of the grave. He came as flesh and blood, as human, resurrected body. And he ascended into heaven in resurrected body. He now exists in heaven with God in resurrected body. And he's going to come again to resurrect our bodies and to actually redeem and restore all creation, to make it new again, to do something so drastic to the material world that it's both a redemption of it, but it's so great. It's just like, I don't know what else to call it, but new, but it's also the same. And ah, this is the story of Christian theology. So we can't go that direction. This is what Paul's addressing in 1 Timothy 4. It's like, don't, don't dismiss these things as bad. He says in verse three, they, meaning the false teachers, they're gonna prohibit marriage and prohibit the eating of foods that God created. These false teachers are coming around and they're spreading this idea within the church that marriage is to be forbidden among, among believers. And really what they're saying is that, that sex is to be forbidden among believers because in a Christian context, sex and marriage are bound together to one another. This is not, you know, a primitive or prudish kind of conservatism. This is our theology. This is what it means to live in logical coherence with the gospel. This is what it means to live fully integrated lives that we're bringing all of us into a vulnerable, physical, intimate encounter that only actually can be protected and sustained and nourished and becomes all that it was meant to be in the context of marriage. And if we take it outside of that, then actually brokenness enters into the picture. So we live as Christians with a particular and peculiar ethic that we believe in fidelity and marriage and celibacy and singleness. And singleness is something in the early church that's highly valued, highly celebrated. Paul even encourages it. He holds it up, not in a way that's against marriage, but holds both of them up and says, these are two ways of faithful living in the world that actually put the gospel on display and help us to image in our own lives the very faithfulness of God. A sense of a, of a beautiful and profound and valued vocation of singleness, of, of celibacy and singleness has been lost in the modern church. We in many ways have disparaged it. We've, we've promoted or elevated marriage above. In the early church, what maybe is happening here is that they're elevating singleness above and saying, no, nobody get married. But the gospel is like, no, both. Both are ways of faithfully living out the way of Jesus. And so he's coming and saying, no, it's not that marriage is prohibited. And then they're forbidding certain kinds of foods. 
Maybe they're enforcing the Old Testament dietary laws and nobody can eat bacon or nobody can have a cheeseburger. You can have the burger, but not with the cheese, those kinds of things. Or maybe they're talking about food that's been sacrificed to idols. But either way, they're saying that abstaining from sex and from food is the path to purity, the path to holiness, that the path to Jesus is away from everything physical and material. And Paul comes in and says, no, 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 no. That's not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus actually teaches us how to actually live fully integrated, fully embodied lives as the people of God. And he says it this way. He says, no, he intended them, these things, these gifts, to be accepted with thanksgiving by those who are faithful and by those who have come to know the truth. Everything that has been created by God is good and nothing, is received with thanks, nothing that is received with thanksgiving should be rejected. These things instead are made holy by God's word and prayer. First thing we can pull out from this passage is this, is that everything that God makes is good. Everything that God makes is good. In Genesis, from our Old Testament reading, God creates the entire material universe. And when he finishes it, he looks at it and he says, it's good. He says, it's very good. Our translation said, supremely good. And here, the false teachers are condemning the very things that God made good. Even food that's been sacrificed to idols was still made good by God. And even that misuse of it doesn't change the fact that this was good, that God intended this to be good. Of course, we now live in the tension of recognizing that God made good has been misused and marred. And what God made good in the garden has in every way been impacted by human rebellion and sin. That the very good things of God have been subject to pain, to disease, to decay, to death. Some of us now live in our own bodies with chronic pain, with disability, with terminal or mental illness, with dysphoria, with dysmorphia. We have all kinds of things that we're carrying and dealing with. Paul even says that all of creation is groaning out, waiting for its redemption. The very things that make us human also make being human hard. It's the space that we live in. But these difficulties don't actually erase the inherent goodness of God's creation that we actually still hold on to this belief that what God made good, what he created, he doesn't actually want to destroy, he wants to redeem. He wants to heal. He wants to bless. He wants to restore. He wants to recreate in every way. That God has not given up on the physical, material world, but he's come into it to save us, to save all of creation. You may have been raised in a home or in a church that actually sort of uh, disguised dualism as Christianity, that sort of layered them on top of one another, had the same kind of syncretism that's happening inside of the early church here, where you grew up with this idea, either consciously or unconsciously, either explicitly or implicitly, that the human body is evil. The human body is dirty. The human body is shameful. Maybe even internalize that, that that's what you believe about yourself. That this physical body that you have is evil, that it's dirty, that it's shameful. But what the scriptures teach us is that the body was made good, that the body is worthy of rescue, 
The body is worthy of redemption. The body is worthy of resurrection. And this is what the body is worthy for, that God didn't come just to save part of us. He actually came to save all of us. Came to save all of it. And this can be really challenging as we're carrying around things in our bodies. Maybe we're made to feel that the things that you, the decisions that you made with your body are unforgivable. And no one ever met you in that moment of shame and said, Jesus loves you. And in Jesus, there is healing, there is freedom, there is forgiveness, there is hope. Maybe for you, you're carried around, not because of a choice that you made, but because of something else somebody did to you and created this confusion inside of you about if my body was good, then why would somebody who was supposed to love me do this to me? You're carrying that around in ways that cause you to feel strange about life in your own body. And I want you to know that Jesus sees you in the middle of that. And that what happened to you did not actually erase the fact that your body was created in the image of God. That your body is worthy of love. That your body is worthy of healing. That your body is worthy of of redemption and rescue. Despite what someone did to you. This is the thought of the gospel of holding these things together, that God made this good. It doesn't mean that everything is right right now, but that God made it and that God can heal it and he will redeem it. Paul even goes so far as to say not only is all creation good, but all creation is a gift. It says that everything God makes is a gift to be gratefully received. Sometimes it's hard to receive gifts especially gifts that we don't want. I remember Christmas 1988. I was a 10-year-old hoping for some new cassette tapes for my boom box. And I was really hoping, you know, that I might open a package and it might be Guns N' Roses, Appetite for Destruction, Bon Jovi, U2's Rattle and Hum had just come out. Instead, I shook the, pass- the package. It's like, my aunt bought me cassette tapes. I'm so excited to open it up. And inside were two new kids on the block tapes. <laughs> not, not quite what I was hoping for at that point in time. There was not a lot of gratitude for me in that gift. But gratitude is a major theme of Paul's writings. He gives thanks all the time. He's saying, I give thanks for this. And he instructs us to live with gratitude. He even actually says at one point that this is what God's will is for us. And God's will for us is to be grateful. First Thessalonians 5, give thanks in every situation, not just in the ones that you wanted, not just in the easy ones, but give thanks in every situation because this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We have all these conversations, what's God's will? What's God's will? And then there's plain things in, in the text that we miss sometimes. That God's will for me is to live with gratitude. That the disposition of the Christian is to see life as a gift from God and to receive all of God's gifts as his grace and to respond with gratitude. And this includes giving thanks for the physical material world that we inhabit. And that is not always easy. It's not easy to do, especially because we're often most aware of our physical or material reality when our physical or material reality is, it's, it's, is the most agonizing thing in our life. It's hard to be grateful in those moments. And yet there's something about the encouragement to gratitude that we find changes things. That gratitude doesn't deny the fact that things are hard, but gratitude does have a transformative effect on our lives. 
even here in this passage, food that had been previously prohibited, either because it was uh, offered to idols or because of dietary laws, is now restored to the people of God as a gift to be received in joy and enjoyed because of gratitude. In fact, that's the other thing we see here is that everything God makes is a gift not only to be gratefully received, but to be faithfully enjoyed. It's actually meant for our enjoyment. But just because it's a gift doesn't mean that it's ours to do with as we want. Maybe the best analogy for this is the time that you maybe can go all the way back to when you were 16 and your parents handed you the keys for the first time and said, you can borrow the car. Here's the gift of the keys. And you got in, you pulled it on the driveway. Maybe you're heading you know, to prom or to homecoming or you were heading out with your friends to your first concert and you had this full awareness that this car has been given to you, but it is not yours. The keys have been given, but the title has not been transferred. Right? The scriptures teach us that the world, the earth is the Lord's and everything and everyone in it. That our life is a gift and our life belongs to God. The world is a gift and it belongs to God. So therefore, God's gifts must be enjoyed within God's guidelines. There were specific instructions our parents gave us as we pulled out of the driveway that day. (laughs) This is how to use this gift. God gives us those same things. He says this in 1 Timothy 4. He intended them to be accepted with thanksgiving by those who are faithful and have come to know the truth. God's gifts are meant to be received by those who know what the gift is for and will be faithful to God's intentions for the gift. To be received by those who know what the gift is for and who will be faithful to God's intentions for the gift. If we, invite, if we violate God's intentions for what's been given to us, if we misuse or abuse what God has given, then the goodness of that gift is actually never realized in our lives. It becomes obscured, becomes lessened. Sometimes it even becomes lost. And the very things that God gave us to be a good gift can become sources of great pain, confusion, destruction, and even death because of the way that we take what's been given to us and meant for good and we do something else with it. Part of these guidelines that God gives to us is that God's gifts must be enjoyed with regard for others which is really hard for us as individualists living in the Western world. Paul addresses this idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, where there's conflict in the church over food. You know how church potlucks can go. There's all kinds of problems that are coming up. And really what's happening here in the Corinthian church is that there's an argument about whether or not Christians can eat food sacrificed to idols. Can we do this as we follow in the way of Jesus? And some are saying, yes, we have the freedom to do this. And others are saying like, I don't know, I'm not there yet. And Paul comes and he writes this and he says, but watch out to those who feel free to eat the food sacrificed to idols. Watch out or this freedom of yours might become a problem for those who are weak, for those who aren't there theologically and who haven't maybe moved to that place in their discipleship or who have things that have happened in their lives that are really hard. Suppose someone sees you, the person who has knowledge, eating in an idol's temple won't the person with a weak conscience be encouraged to eat the meat sacrificed to false gods? In other words, won't they suddenly be in this place where their conscience is sort of put in conflict and they're not sure what to do? The weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. You sin against Christ if you sin against your brothers and sisters and hurt their weak conscience in this way. 
This is why if food causes the downfall of my brother or sister, I just won't eat it. I won't eat meat ever again or else I may cause my brother or sister to fall. In the U.S., we don't encounter a lot of food that's been sacrificed to idols. Our food has been sacrificed to the deep fryer instead is where we kind of go into what I do with this. Globally, this is still a reality in a lot of places, but the principle I think applies. We can apply it in all kinds of areas. We can take it and apply it to something like alcohol. The scripture clearly forbids drunkenness, the misuse or the abuse of alcohol. The scriptures warn and forbid the the use of a substance in a way that impairs our cognitive function, that distorts our sense of reality, that impedes our ability to discern right and wrong and disrupts our relationships. And yet the, the scriptures also say that there are moments here, like in Timothy, where he says, hey, take a little bit of wine for your upset stomach. And we find Jesus turning water into wine and those things. And so some Christians feel that they are free to have a drink in moderation, as long as it doesn't violate any of the guidelines that God has set up. But others do not. Others can't. They're in recovery. They are turning to Jesus to ask for freedom from a thing that has actually had a huge grip on their lives and they're turning away from that. And they can't. Some have been raised by alcoholics. Others live with alcoholics. Others have had their lives inevitably or or, or like permanently altered in some way by alcohol. For some, the very sight or smell of alcohol is quite traumatic. And if we are careless and insensitive to others and to their stories, if we insist on exercising or flaunting our freedom in front of them in some way, then we've actually moved away from love. And we moved outside of the bounds of the way Jesus, the guidelines for which God set for us to enjoy things. The last point that Paul makes here is this. He says, everything that God makes is good, but he, not only does he make it good, but he can also make it holy. This is the wondrous turn of this passage where he says, these things that God created and called good are made holy by God's word and by prayer. That because God made it with his own word, that he spoke it into existence, that he made it good and he called it good, and that he gave us his word to guide how we interact with the physical material world that has been given to us, that when we receive it gratefully and when we receive it faithfully, that what has been made and called good is not just good, it also becomes holy, (laughs) consecrated. In this place, we see the vision of the material and the spiritual coming together. Heaven and earth meeting heaven and earth overlapping. It's in these places that we actually realize that we encounter God, that we meet him in these moments and we get a foretaste of the future. This is actually where the whole story is going. It's not to a place where the spiritual and the material are set apart from one another, but where the material is completely infused with the spiritual where all creation has been redeemed and restored by the love of God revealed in Christ Jesus. And we get to taste new creation in resurrected bodies. 
And when we actually live our lives in this way, receiving the gifts and gratitude and faithfulness that God has made good, we get a foretaste of the future. We get a little bit of a taste, a little bit of a sight of what is to come. We actually see this at the table. We learn this at the table. I want to invite the band to come forward, our worship team and Pastor Evan to come forward. The Eucharist or the communion table has often been called the great Thanksgiving. Eucharist even means to give thanks. And what we're doing here is exactly what Paul told us to do, is we're receiving something physical, bread, non-alcoholic wine, a cracker, really, a non-alcoholic wine. They may not be your favorite, but they are good. They're physical, material things that God has made, that God has called good, and we're receiving them with thanksgiving. We're receiving them faithfully, receiving them according to the instructions that Jesus has given to us. And what happens is these ordinary, everyday, physical, material things actually become infused with the very presence of God. And the very ordinary things that God said good actually become holy for us. And they become moments and places that we get to actually meet and encounter the presence of Jesus. And so as we come to the table, we're actually practicing the way of life that Paul shows us here in 1 Timothy. Evan, would you lead us this morning? What a beautiful word that he's made us and calls us good. And this person, Jesus, and this place, this table, he also makes the way that the good thing he's made can also become holy. This is Jesus's table. All who believe Jesus is the true king of the world are welcome to receive the communion elements regardless of your church background or affiliation. If you don't believe as we believe, thank you for choosing to spend Sunday morning with us. This is, it's beautiful to share this time together. We're honored that you're here and we encourage you, keep coming. Keep asking questions about Jesus. However, if you are ready to believe in Jesus and follow his teachings, we invite you to join with us as we confess our sin again ask for forgiveness, and place our trust in Jesus again. The words will come up on the screen. Let's confess together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. So, beloved, it is my joy this morning to announce good news to you, words that are true not because I say them, but because of what God has done. So would you open up your hands and receive again this mercy of God? that Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners, and that this proves God's love toward us, that in the name of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. The peace of the Lord be with you. As those have been raised to new life in Jesus, would you stand and rise now and greet those who are around you, your brothers and sisters in Christ, and pass this peace along to them as well.
Beloved, Jesus is here. So lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right. It is good. Come on. Yes and amen. It is a good and joyful thing to give thanks to you, Father Almighty. God, you formed us in your image and breathed your life into us. When our love fails, your love remains steadfast. When we are unfaithful, you sent your son to be faithful on our behalf. And it was on the night that he was handed over to suffering and death that our Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had blessed it, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup of wine and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this for the remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of God's mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we proclaim together this mystery of our faith, that Christ has died, that Christ is risen, and that Christ will come again. All of us who are in Christ are part of a priesthood of believers. So would you stretch out your hand over the elements or open them up heavenward? We're just going to ask the Holy Spirit to come. So pour out your Holy Spirit on us, O oh God, and on these gifts of bread and wine. May they be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. By your Spirit, make us one with Jesus one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Jesus returns in final victory. Amen. I want to invite the servers to come on up now. And as they come, this is the statement, that these are the gifts of God given for us, the people of God. Receive them in remembrance that Jesus died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith and with Thanksgiving. Just a moment as we prepare to come forward, just to explain a little bit. This is how it's going to work. Bef beginning in the each of each section, in the front of each section, everyone will exit to your left, and you'll come forward. If you're in the balcony, you can come down here and join us. My left, your right on this section, or there's prepackaged elements up on the table up there. If you're unable to come forward, just ask someone around you to grab the elements for you and bring them back to you. If you're not receiving today, we ask you to still come forward. The rows are pretty tight, so it just makes the flow easier. Then when you get to the front, by the servers, just walk on by and return to your seats. If you are receiving, come with your hands postured open like this. This is not something we've gained, but that he's given. So we receive it open-handed as a gift. There'll be a server, a napkin box thing that you'll grab a napkin if you want. And then the servers in the front. Um, the first server will take the gluten-free cracker, speak the words, and then dip it in the non-alcoholic wine and then place it in your hand or in the napkin. You can receive right then and there or carry them back to your seat and receive with those around you or who you came with. If you prefer the prepackaged elements, they're also in the front and you can just ask a server, they'll give those to you. There'll be two stations in the middle section and on my right, your left. Just make sure to alternate. And then after we're done receiving as we respond right now at the table and then with worship, um, 
these servers often stay up and they become the prayer and ministry team at the end of the service. So just keep that in mind. Is there something that you need prayer for? They're going to remain here as we close service to, to be in the space, to pray for you, to contend for you. The table is open. The spirit and the bride say, come, let us respond again and worship and come to the table.